Well, good morning, church. Oh, man, what an incredible thing uh, it is to uh, be a part of moments like these when people are stepping into this particular part of their spiritual journey. Uh, when you do this in some regularity like we do, I think sometimes uh, the profound nature of what we are participating with as we observe this happening is lost on us. Uh, you know, for me, um, I still distinctly remember with such clarity uh, the day that I was baptized. I was 16 in a little church in South Africa uh, on another continent across another ocean, uh, and it was just as profound and beautiful as this. Now, this moment of baptism that we just got to watch um, is something uh, that, that shouldn't be lost on us. Because in, in many ways, uh, though this moment does not affect this person's eternity, uh, this moment is only an expression of what's already been affected for their eternity, it sure does have a profound impact on their spiritual journey on this planet. And, and our baptism is a moment where in such a public way, we with obedience and courage say to our uh, uh, sort of body, our congregation, our, our people, hey, I'm planning to really engage in a public way in following Jesus. Like, he loves me, he's rescued me, I've given my heart to him, but, but I'm, I'm going to go after him, and I'm going to do it with you all, and, and I'm hoping you all will do it with me. That, that's really what just unfolded here, right? And and, and that should not be lost on us, how profound a thing that is for someone to participate in and for us to participate with them in it. Because if we've learned anything from our journey through the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi with the question from Philippi, hey Paul, how do we do this life following Jesus when the kingdom we currently live in is planet death and the culture around us uh, is hostile toward us and toward his kingdom and our own journeys are difficult because we have lots of feelings that still are part of the circumstances, relationships, and resource challenges of this planet. How do we follow Jesus? And, and Paul, in, if you, if you want to really simplify the entire thing that is the letter of Philippians, this is kind of what he said. Well, well, be like Jesus, have his attitude, behave like him, follow him, think like him, talk like him, do everything like him. And then he said this, but since that's super complicated and difficult, make sure you're doing it together because you can't do it alone. Make sure you're leaning into each other. In other words, the way he put it, two different distinct times in the letter is look to each other as you follow Jesus. So that as I look to you, as you follow Jesus, that gives me the, the strength, the courage, the clarity, the perseverance to follow Jesus well, because I'm following you as you follow Christ. And then you look to me as I follow Jesus. And if we do that together, then following Jesus on this planet of death will be something that will be much more profoundly authentic. Uh, this is not about whether we belong to Jesus or not. That's a work of his for us. It is whether we follow him well or not while we're on this planet. And that we got to do together. So what a, what a thing it is to be a part of baptisms where somebody is saying publicly, 
I'm planning to follow Jesus, hope to do it with you all, so watch me as I follow him. And they're saying simultaneously, I'm kind of hoping I can watch you all. So what should happen to us whenever we engage in the beauty of watching baptisms is that it should stir an inspiration in us to say, look at the zeal and the passion and the beauty and the story of this person's encounter with Jesus. I want to be refreshed in my desire to follow Jesus. And a weightiness should rest on our shoulders, not a burden of such weight that it crushes us, just a weightiness of responsibility that says, since these beautiful people are jumping in newly into this journey of following Jesus, boy, I hope I am thinking about following Jesus in a way that causes them to be able to look to me as I follow Jesus well. We should be stirred, spurred on toward love and good deeds, as the author of Hebrews says, by watching baptisms. This is, this is the, the unpacking reality of the letter of Philippians. And so as Paul has traveled through and he's kind of given us that, have your attitude, be that of Jesus. And here's what that is. Do it together, looking to each other. Here's what that looks like. He's kind of walked through that. Then he got to this part that we are most recently in. Remember where he said, just so you know, in case you are assuming that I, Paul, have attained all of this that I'm calling you to, I have not attained it, which is uh, certainly a, a bomb to my little soul that looks to Paul and goes, oh my gosh, look how awesome he is. And you're like, yeah, I didn't write everything down. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're gonna have some stories to tell when we get to the other side where Paul's gonna go, yeah, I blew it there, couldn't do that, thought this, had a hard time with that. And it's gonna be beautiful. So if you're having a hard time following Jesus some days, welcome to being human and being on planet earth and not having transitioned into eternity yet. So Paul says, this is a journey. I've not attained it yet, but what do I do? I strive forward toward these things. That is my privilege. That is my participation. That's what we do together. Where I recognize I'm not aligned, I lean onto the others who are doing the same and we together become more like Jesus. Why? Because when we do, we experience more of his freedom, life, and light, and we express more of his freedom, life, and light so that our community, our world, and the cosmos sees the beauty of that. We do this together, which is why, just a quick side note, we should pay really close attention to the spaces in which we are divided. Why? Because if you were the enemy of God, and you knew these two things, that God's power and God's redemption will be most on display in him unifying a broken human race. How do we know that? Ephesians, remember? God's cosmic sermon is that he is bringing Gentiles and Jews together and that that will ultimately play out in heaven as John told us in his vision of Uh, the representation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation unified under Christ. This is the cosmic sermon we are participating in. So if I, the enemy of God, can create division in the people of God, one, I demonstrate the powerlessness of God. And that's not going to happen, thankfully, because God is powerful, but we should participate actively in unifying ourselves to each other for the cosmic sermon. And secondarily, double win, 
These guys can't persevere in following Jesus well if they do it alone. So if I can get them alone, then they won't persevere. So our division is a deadly thing that we should fight diligently to notice and remedy. Sorry, little side note. Unity is a big deal. So in all of this, Paul is now saying, okay, so as we strive forward toward this end, what does that look like? What I love about scripture is that scripture is dealing regularly, not only with what is to come in the kingdom of God, and that we should just always, when we are on this little planet and things are going awry, if we can just transcend ourselves and remember what's going on there, then we'll be fine. It doesn't just deal with the there. It deals very much with the here and now as well. It's always both and, not either or. So where Paul just ended that little part saying, remember, remember as you're striving here and it's a bit of a struggle, remember that your citizenship is there. And we're like, good, okay, got it. Then he says, okay, let's get back to the here and now. What is a, what is a regular and expected experience of being a human on planet earth? Uh, We'll just wrap it all up into one big giant word, anxious, anxious. I mean, you're just anxious, man. Like you born anxious. You know what I'm saying? You come out and you look and you scream. Put me back in here. I floated around. It was so beautiful. And then I came out and there's this. I have to breathe air. Everything's just like, and then as we grow older, It's not like we're like, oh, oh, it's a stable place. Oh, oh, the other humans are friendly. That's nice. Oh, oh, this is the the older I get, the the more lovely everything becomes. No, 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 no. The further we go, we're like, yeah, that that scream was appropriately placed. (laughs) This place is, uh, it's a hard place. Now, don't get me wrong. It has beauty because God is gracious and there's actually theological reality to God's uh, affecting beauty even on planet death as an act of grace toward us. But in reality, what causes us to live in a version of anxiety, anxiousness, is the fact that everything is uncertain and we have, as we grow older, reason to understand that the uncertainty sometimes turns out the way we hope it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's the sometimes it doesn't that breeds in us a fear, an anxiety, a what if, because we are also a people that from the time we are born as we grow, before we encounter Jesus, and frankly, after we encounter Jesus, the great wrestle is this. If things on this planet are as they should be, then I will be safe. I will be well. I will be happy. I will be okay. I will be content. We recognize early on in our life as humans, whether cognitively, consciously, or even uh, subconsciously, as, as small children, depending on our childhood experience, we realize Oh my goodness, if things here are good, then I, then I feel well. My well-being is tied directly to the reality of the circumstances, relationships, and resources I have available and what they are like. So since those are unpredictable, 
and often not so fun. We start learning super fast. Oh gosh, I don't know what tomorrow holds. And if it holds X, Y, and Z, then my well-being is disrupted and everything is, is going to go awry. And so what does that leave us with? A feeling of anxiety. We're just anxious beings. And we all have different coping mechanisms with our anxiety. So some of you here are like, I ain't never anxious. I was one of those. One of those beautiful people that literally, I think a year and a half ago, if you'd asked me, are you like ever anxious? Whatever. I don't do anxiety. (laughs) I have a theological solid bent on eternity. And frankly, I have a dysfunctional optimism. So whatever junk comes my way, I just imagine it other. And then it is all fine. That was me. It turns out I have learned along the way uh, that we all carry fears, anxieties, and realities within us. The way we express those, the way we experience those, and the way we cope with those differs greatly among our personalities and among our mechanisms, but we have them. And this is what I love about Scripture is that God is not trying to communicate to us in a world we don't live in about a world we will get someday as an exclusive way to keep us safe. He constantly says, now, what does this mean for you right here? How do you do this? So when Paul says in Philippians, don't be anxious for anything, we often take that and we divorce it from the passage right before it, which is not that I've already attained this, but I'm striving. And we say, look, don't be anxious for anything. There it is. You better do it. If you're anxious about anything, you're in disobedience. And I'm like, hold on, time out. He's just talking about a reality in which we live. And he's talking about it in the context of what we are striving towards. So he says, when you are anxious, notice that and strive together toward a place where the anxiety is measured by some other things so that you are less anxious. And eventually in time, anxiety is diminished to the point where it does not drive you. Because when our well-being is impacted by the realities of this planet, then the realities of this planet drive us. So we we work toward that. So what does he say? He says, when you are anxious, uh, there's some things that you should engage in. First, uh, from a defensive position, right? Go immediately to the one that you now know and set yourselves before him and remind yourselves of who he is by bringing your anxieties or the causes of your anxieties to him. Say, God, I am anxious because I recognize that there are some unknowns in my life. And if those unknowns turn out differently than I want, they're going to cause me pain, therefore disrupt my well-being. Therefore, I will not be okay. Therefore, I am scared. Therefore, I am anxious. I'm about to have that doctor's visit and the diagnosis is uncertain. I'm going to that job and in this economy, don't know when my time is going to be up. My resources are lower than they need to be to match what I need to affect. Uh, Everything that we do uh, is constantly like there's an unknown, and if it doesn't turn out the way I want, then I'm going to not be well. So we, we face this, and Paul says, when you're there and you recognize what these things are, this relational dynamic with this other human is disrupting me second by second. And the longer I am around them, the more unhappy I become. We now have a beautiful culture 
that has taken every human conflict that has been around for thousands of years, and we've added wonderful words to them now, like toxic, terrible. Now, don't get me wrong. Are there deeply toxic relationships and terrible things that we need to, yes, but welcome to culture everything. And so as soon as we have any human anything that isn't wonderful, we're like, oh, time out, boundary, end of story, get away from me. I get it because this is how we respond. And Paul says, hold on, time out, don't do that. Don't do that. Come to me with the things that are disrupting you, the things that are uncertain, the things that are causing anxiety, and come and ask me about them. Come and leave them with me. If we come to God with our anxieties, with the attitude that says, you are a formula, if I tell you what they are, you'll make them what I want them to be, then we are going to remain anxious because we're going to constantly just go, I hope he does what I want. But if we come to him the way Paul has, has described the entire book of the Philippians, of Philippians saying, I'm going to take this thing, I'm going to bring it to you, I'm going to set it with you, and I'm going to say, that doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly not be anxious about it, but what it does mean is I'm going to be reminded that where my well-being finds its stability is not in whatever this circumstance, relational dynamic, or resource challenge is going to be. It is in the who that you are and the what that you've promised. And so I come to you with this thing, ask you to handle this thing in a way that is going to best fulfill the things you've said you're doing in me, for me, for my future. And I certainly hope they turn out this way, FYI. That's what Paul is trying to describe. That's why he says, come to him with your anxieties through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. This attitude that says, what I'm thankful for is who you are and what I'm thankful for is what you've promised. I'm not thankful for you being a genie in the box that'll give me what I want every time. So there's our first defense. And now Paul says, okay, that, that's, that's certainly a part of what you should do with planet earth and your anxieties. But uh, there's another way that you can participate, should participate. In fact, God's going to tell you to participate that is profound and more offensive. I'm going to go on the offense. I'm going to say, uh, as you planet earth, uh, planet of death, as you enemy of God, uh, prince of the kingdom of darkness, as you body of flesh still infected with the virus of sin, fighting for your own well-being, are confronting my little soul and saying, if you're going to be okay, all this has to be okay. Uh, and I'm going to have a thousand reasons that are running at me constantly eroding okay. The humans around me, the circumstances around me, the resources around me, they're everywhere. As I face that, how am I going to engage in that in a way that says, no, 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 no. You circumstances, you humans, and you resource challenges don't get to inform me any longer about my well-being. How am I going to do that on the offensive? And he says, there is a way. There is a way. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, uh, he follows the don't be anxious for anything, but bring everything to God. He follows that now with a way for us to engage in offensively standing against what the culture, the world, the enemy of God wants us to feel and believe. He says this, finally, brothers, verse 8 of chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is uh, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, then 
Uh, if about these things, I'm sorry, if there is any excellence in everything, where am I? If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, I was missing a sentence. I was skipping an entire sentence. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You with me so far? So he's he's saying this, listen, listen. When you look at life, circumstances, humans, resource realities, okay? And they are communicating to you things that are uncertain or things that aren't uncertain. They're just terrible, right? Pause, stop, time out and say, okay, hold on, hold on. I get to find in this reality I'm looking at, I get to find things that are in fact commendable, excellent, just, true, right, good, pure, and I get to choose to think on these things. See, that statement, man, think on them. Like, drive your thoughts to them. Think on them. Paul says, the Spirit of God told him to tell us, we should behave that way. We should actually assume that we should cognitively, participatorily, is that even a word? In participation, we should consciously drive our thinking toward these things. Now, it's an interesting list, and it's an interesting verse, quite honestly, because when I first read this verse, I'm like, oh gosh, like how do you expound on this? You know what I'm saying? Like from a preacher's standpoint, this is an odd one. Like, I mean, how self-explanatory is this one? Oh, let me unpack for you what the word excellence means. Like, well, we all kind of know. Now, we have differing opinions on where excellent lies, you know, my wife and I, when I'm at like 30%, I'm beyond excellent. I'm like, what? Because I, I function in a contentment with mediocrity. And so I'm like, oh gosh, uh, that looks practically excellent. And my wife is a perfectionist. So at 101%, uh, it's barely excellent. It's like, uh, could, might be excellent, but I, I'm sure there's something about it that isn't. You know, so we may differ a little bit in our opinion of where we land on just or excellent. Or, but our differences aren't going to be things like, I think justice is allowing human slavery to continue. Like nobody's there. Everybody knows that's not just. I mean, if you know Jesus, certainly you're like, okay, got it. Well, we might, like, we're differing up here in the areas. I get it. But our point in this passage, Paul's point in this passage, isn't to try to say, Pay close attention to every word. There's a five-fold principle here on a formula. No, you're just like, look, if it's awesome, think about it. Excellent, praiseworthy, just. I mean, do that. If it is worthy of gratitude, of praise, if you're like, oh, when I think about that human in this way or think about that circumstance in this way or think about that resource in this way and I apply a truth of God to that human, to that resource challenge or to that circumstance, then that truth changes the reality of that thing from its pure form. I don't have any resources. Okay, that's a truth. But what does God do with poverty in our lives? Oh, that's a whole nother truth I can You see what I'm saying? Well, that human is a jerk. Totally. That is definitely true. But is that all that they are or all that they might someday be? I just put that there for you because some of you are like, yep, that's all they are. That's it. I'm done. Trust me. You're not around them. Like, yeah. But how does God see us in our future? We, We can apply truth and then we can say, okay, what can I find here that brings me to a place that goes, oh, 
that's certainly worthy of gratitude. That's worthy of praise. He says, like, do that and do it all the time as much as you can regularly. So I just want to tell you guys, like these, these kinds of verses that come like, hey, think about these wonderful things. I mean, they're my favorite. Mm. I get to these puppies and I just, like, I, I, I feel immediately judgmental toward the entire rest of the planet. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, because, because this has been my assumption all along. If you can just put uh, the beautiful rose-colored glasses on that I wear every day with my dysfunctional optimism, then you too will be happy all the time. And so when I encounter humans that are struggling or anxious or have difficulty, then I come to them, used to, used to, not anymore. I have learned, I have grown up. Uh, I I used to come to them like, oh, positive thinking. I mean, not like, you know, uh, Oprah version positive thinking or world version, just like, hey, what you just see, apply some truth, think positively, you've got an eternity waiting for you, all is well in the world. So my wife, who uh, she and I have very, very differing personalities, um, and, you know, she's uh, more of a perfectionist-oriented person. She uh, likes to make things the best they can be. Would you like people around you that like to make things the best they can be? You're like, I don't know. Is that a trick question? It's not a trick question. Uh, because uh, throughout our journey prior to the last decade of our life, um, I used to, you know, Brooke would, would be thinking about all the details and managing all the finances in our home so we don't go into debt and we do our thing and managing all the, the different medical realities of each of our kids that need to stay healthy and managing all the schools they go to and managing their education. And so every day the lists are unending in her head and she thinks about all the details and she has a propensity to see the realities of what needs to become better, what needs to be fixed, what's broken and wrong. And then she would have lots of like stress and anxiety every day because she's like, oh, there's so much to do. And then I would roll in like the superhero that I am with verses like this. Oh, you should read the Bible uh, and, look at, and look at this lovely verse. It says, think on the excellent things. So what you just need to do is stop thinking about the stupid details like the dishes in the sink and all that. And then she would rightly say, so what you're saying is you want to be in debt broke and have children that aren't educated because you ain't thinking about any of that. And I'd be like, well, I don't know. Can you do both? So, so what I realize as I encounter these spaces is that we have different personalities, all of us, and some of our personalities have propensities toward things in scripture that we're called to that we find easy and propensities toward things we don't. This one's my easy. It's some of your hard. There are others that are your easy. There's plenty of verses my wife can bring to me about a lot of other things and say, uh, you should pay attention to this. I'm like, no, don't think about that. That's not excellent. That's scary. <laughs> So because those of us that are like me, our philosophy is always stick your head in the sand for long enough and everything will be okay. That's not a truth. It's an escape. But what we do find easy is that when we are called to think about things in a different way that are, that are more honorable, that we see the beauty in them, we, are, we do that well. So that's why I love this verse. But what I've learned about this verse is that we need to be honest about verses like this in our collective journey. So one, we need to be honest that when we encounter verses like this, they are differing personalities in this room that find this easier and harder. If you're the type of personality that finds this easy, don't throw this around like a judgment. Don't be rolling around. If all these other humans can just think positively, then they'll all be happy like me. That is not a truth. Though there is truth in thinking this way, it's not a truth that they should be able to do it like you and that if they do, it'll be fine. I've learned some other things as well that have helped me understand the complexities of this verse and the beauty of this verse and Paul's call to our journey in this space as one we are attaining toward, not one that we should have arrived at. 
because the, the, the scary thing about this passage is that when we come and say, be anxious for nothing and think only on these excellent things, it can quickly produce a great deal of shame in a bunch of humans because you wake up in the morning and say, Christians are supposed to never have anxiety and supposed to always think about awesome stuff, and I don't, so I'm failing. And I'm like, no, Paul said, we are striving towards something together that none of us have yet exceeded or succeeded at. All of us are progressively towards something. So. Here's what I've realized about anxiety as well. And just the general realities of depression, fear, anxiety, all the words that clump together. Our journey on this planet is profoundly and deeply impacted by the circumstances and experiences and relational dynamics we have, often to the point where they reshape and wound our actual brains. So we have an advantage in today's world that Paul did not have. Thankfully, the Spirit of God did because he designed this thing called a human. So what we will discover in all of our human future and every wonderful thing we will find, God already knows. You with me? So when he's communicating 2,000 years ago about the way we should live, he is communicating directly into our design, even though we haven't yet discovered our own design. So that when we discover our design, we can have this profound clarity that what God said we should do, he actually made us to do, and he made us to become well when we do it. Because God's commands always lead us eventually to greater freedom, light, and life, not ever to more bondage, even though sometimes in our cultural context, it can feel like God's stuff holds me back from the fun. I'm like, uh, you should get to know the human design and then you will see what God says. So the human brain is fascinating. In the last few decades, especially as we have understood trauma more and more, we have come to realize that both through actual brain injuries like a head injury, as well as brain injuries through traumatic experiences, when we are violated in some way, or when, we're, when something that God designed like our attachment to a primary person that is our parent is severed, all of these kinds of things, when we now study the brain with scans and all sorts of wonderful technologies, we start noticing the tremendous woundings that take place in this thing we call our brain. And when our brain is wounded as the muscle and organ, it's kind of a bit of both of those things, it's neither and it's both and it's everything, is wounded, that then affects deeply the way that the design of our chemicals in our body are supposed to work, and it affects the way our brain communicates to us how we see and think and experience the world. So for many of us, and I would argue on some level for all humans because we all live in a constant sense of the traumatic, small, small tra trauma with other humans. I mean, you all are dangerous. I'm dangerous. We're dangerous to each other. And we take a whole long time to come to Jesus. And then even after we come to Jesus, we're pretty dangerous. Before we come to Jesus, we're like very dangerous. And so we all have a certain amount of assumptions, realities. We call them neuropathways that have established and embedded in some of us uh, many of us, unfortunately, on this planet have had such woundings in our life that the, 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 the realities of our brain is wounded enough that for me to say to you, just think on the beautiful stuff. Uh, it would be like me asking you to carry two buckets of waters, water when you don't have any arms. So, so I just want to put this on the table for all of you. The beauty of Scripture 
is that it is coming to us knowing where we're at and saying, I I get it. Uh, This is what you can participate in to see transformation in that. But I'm not putting this on the table as a, you better do this, otherwise you're failing. This passage is not about what you have to be or should be doing if you're going to be a good Christian. It's a gift God is giving us to say, when you are anxious, welcome to the human race. There are two things you can do that help you participate in the good work I've already promised I will finish. One, bring it to me and get used to doing that because that will reorient you to the kingdom you live in and the God you serve and how he loves you. And then two, practice hard work at taking the things and thoughts that are disruptive and terrible and start applying by the power of the spirit and your participation, these thinking on these things because it will make change. And then you go, but, but, but God's telling us to do that when he knows our brains are often injured. And so things like real anxiety and real stuff and real depression and real fears are real. And the rest of us, we're just a bit bitter and that's hard enough to overcome. Yes, but here's the other thing we've learned about the brain. This is crazy. It's crazy. Pay close attention now. Turns out in trauma terms, they call the brain plastic. They used to think that at three years old, whatever your brain was, that's it. And then like over a hundred years, if you beat it with a hammer, eventually you might shift it a quarter of an inch. Turns out we can do brain scans now and that's not even remotely tiny, tiny, but true. Yes, there are some things that establish in our early childhood that establish quickly And they take longer to unestablish just because of the nature of a growing human. Just like a child grows from here to here in like a few years. And then you get to be like 23 and you just like stay there. You're like, huh, it's much slower now. And then you get to be like 65 and you start going down. You're like, huh, it's reversing now. (laughs) Our brains are the same way. They develop very quickly in the early three years. And they establish some things that are very conclusive. But it turns out our brains are very much uh, a shaping thing constantly. And now, I was, I was just, I, I read a, a bunch on this over the last 10 years, but just this week I was reading again. Uh, I, was, I was listening to and reading the guy and his team that have established the most brain scans of people in history. So far, 83,000 brain scans, it's a database. And they scanned the brain of 40 different um, nationalities. And they've scanned the brain of every disease that they, could, that, that they know is cognitive. And they've done 83,000 brain scans. And then over a decade, they've studied these. And they've demonstrated how, with certain uh, therapies, the actual brain actually heals. Like big, giant, like severs in the brain from either head trauma or traumas that are emotional traumas or violations that the brain actually is designed by God to heal. And what they're finding more and more, this is crazy, what they're finding more and more is though medication is necessary and helpful to brain trauma because it measures the chemicals that then are affected by brain trauma, the lack of serotonin and dopamine or the, or the, the, the constant adrenal fatigue that comes from testosterone and anxiety uh, chemicals being thrown because your brain is in fight, freeze or flight mode and you're like, oh, I'm always scared. All those things, sometimes medications can measure that so you can be stable enough so that you can heal. But here's what they found. Medications are not primary or even most helpful in healing the actual brain itself. What heals the brain itself is the way we begin to think about life. 
Isn't that crazy? This isn't self-help talk, folks. I'm not, you're like, oh my gosh, when I was turned into a self-help guru and the next thing he's going to have Oprah on the stage. I don't know why I use Oprah. It's kind of weird. But, um, you know, she kind of represents an entire world. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just actual brain science. And here's why I'm talking brain science when it comes to this. I find it fascinating when God said something 2,000 years ago that we find out now has an actual, real, physical impact and he's known all along when you do certain things, it actually changes this thing in your head and that changes the way the chemicals function and it changes the way you experience and express life and it changes the way you behave. So when, when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, do you remember what he wrote? Uh, the, the, the most theologically robust unpacking of the gospel ever known to man, the book of Romans, right? Chapters 1 through 11. Here's the gospel in all of its massive form. And you're like, whoa! And then Romans 12:1. Therefore, folks, in view of God's mercy, this gospel, in view of his mercy... Do not any longer conform to the patterns of this world, but present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what the will of God is, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's actually, I just quoted scripture in case you're like, are you making this up? I'm like, no, no, it's a verse in the Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. So here's what Paul's saying. Before Paul knew anything about brain science, God tells Paul to tell us, I am gonna transform you. That's my work. The work I began in you, I will bring to completion. What book is that in? Philippians. But do you wanna participate with this transformation? then take truth and embed it in your mind because when you take truth and you repeat it over and over again, you know what it does to your neurobiology? It changes it. And then that neurobiology becomes affected by truth. So either your neurobiology is telling you what's true, bad, 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 or you are taking truth from an outside source, God, and telling your neurobiology what's true until it recognizes truth. That's why memorizing scripture or meditating on scripture, (gasps) biblical mandates are actually just designed to help us have a much easier time with our anxieties and our beliefs. That is why we must obey what God says and say, I'm going to do this. So we know this, thinking about the wonderful positive things in life, if you're like me and you're just like, I do that in a second. Pay attention, just a caution. Love that you do that. You probably feel full of energy all the time and fairly healthy because we know that positive thinking in the brain does affect the body. But you might also be an escape artist ignoring all of the reality that you should be working on and you're healing from nothing because you're constantly burying it with uh, a dysfunctional optimism. I'm just throwing it on the table as a possible suggestion. Because what we often do as Christians or as positive little people like myself in that lovely personality world of escapism through optimism is that we don't actually ever fully heal from our traumas because we keep them buried with positive optimism. And it is not an either or, it is a both and. Have the courage to face the pains and fears in your life because the Bible is full of instructions on how to do that too. 
and hold on to that positivity. Certainly, it's helpful for the body of Christ to see the positive people be positive because it helps the not propensity positive people to lean in a bit. But also be honest that your positivity is not an escape. It is actually an obedience to this. I think rightly about things and I think fully about things. For those of you here that struggle with anxiety or your personality pr uh, uh, propensities are toward the things that are more like precise and precision. So your mind is never stopping and you're always trying and it's all anxious and it's all this either because of trauma or because of personality or because of a combination. I get it. I, I, I live in spaces with the people I love most that live in those worlds and struggle with that. And this passage feels overwhelming to you. Here's what I would offer you. Man, you're super good at constantly driving toward fixing the things and need fixing the healing process. Keep doing that. Don't stop. But God is not playing around with this either. He's real. This does work. And not because Oprah said it. So odd. Um, but because God said it. And what you should do, like me, is you should say, since this is, in fact, something that God said is a way that I participate offensively against the things trying to drive me into a place of anxiety, I am going to lean into the body of Christ, those who find this easy, and I'm going to ask them to help me in regularity start thinking more positively about the things around me. And I don't mean positively like, eh, I mean what he said. If there's something excellent or something worthy of praise or something just or something good, so that's humans, that's circumstances, that's resources. Because that's our whole life. I know every time I say that, you're like, you make our lives feel so like simple. Like it's just a big thing of human relationships, circumstances, and, and resources. I'm like, okay, find me something else. <laughs> like that's the entire planet. You know, like that's what we have. So these things come at us. And here's the, here's the reality. They are hard. I get it. The other humans are hard. But once we start saying about each human, about each circumstance, and about each reality, I know my initial encounter with it is, ah, that's just not. I get to, because I have the Spirit of God and because I know Jesus, I get to do this. All right, Renault, what about this person is worthy of praise? Not like them, like, but like, what about them? Can I say to God, thank you for that? Might take you a month. I get it. Teenagers, think about your parents and you'll be like, done, no praiseworthiness whatsoever. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get a frontal lobe back at 22 and then there'll be plenty to praise about. In the meantime, practice hard, find something. Parents, about your teenagers. Mm. You're like, oh my gosh, they used to be cute. <laughs> There's a plenty about them that's worthy of praise, but it's hard to encounter when you're encountering them face to face daily because they're trying to figure out their independence and you're in the way. And so I get it. These are designs that happen, corrupted by sin. But we are called by God to say, engage with all your might to take the thinking you have and apply it to this. Think about the things that are good and right and praiseworthy that do exist. And then linger on those. Why? Why? Listen to what the next verse says. So, you know, worthy of praise, think about such things. And then the next verse says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
It's an interesting way that he writes this because when he writes a sentence like this in the English translation, and the God of peace will be with you, we usually interpret that primarily as God is with you, but it was not unintentional that he used the word peace here. This is what he says. And the peace of God that is by his presence will be with you. It's almost like he's not separating the two. If the peace of God is with you, who's with you? God. You can't have the peace of God without God being with you. So he's kind of saying this, then the God specifically in this occasion, as a result of this reality, the God of peace will be with you. In other words, you will know the peace of God. So think about this for a second. It's kind of crazy, right? If there's a circumstance and it's like, ah, and I can look at it and say, God, what about this circumstance from your truth and your perspective is something that you are up to that I can engage in. Like James would have said, consider uh, all trials and tribulations as joy. What? Because you know that they are doing something profoundly wonderful. That would be a good example of taking something profoundly ugly and saying it is profoundly ugly. I'm not pretending like Renault. It's beautiful. I'm actually applying truth to it and saying it's more than just ugly. It's also worthy of praise in some aspect. Then your circumstances change. Then your anxiety and stress about those change. Your uncertainty about them changes. And their outcome doesn't affect your well-being nearly as much, just a little bit. The humans, that's another one. I'm, I had a senior pastor years ago say to me, who was my pastor when I was a youth ministries uh, pastor, he said to me, you know, all humans have two lists. Uh, a really ugly one and a, and a, and a really awesome one. And uh, the more you get to know them, the more you will bump into the ugly one quite often. And, and the nice one. But the nice one doesn't like affect you in a big way. It's just kind of like there and it's nice, but the ugly one. And then eventually uh, you will choose to think about them only in the ugly list. So the beauty about being a human and especially a human that knows Jesus is when those two lists come, we get to pick which one to focus on. Not that we're naive and we don't acknowledge both. We just pick which one we focus on. And he said this, depending on which list you choose to focus on for long enough is what that person will become to you. So when God says, if we apply daily a effort, a work at thinking rightly about things in excellent and praiseworthy ways about them, then our relational dynamics with our spouses, children, friends, coworkers becomes more about peace and less about hostility. It is an inevitability. You can't have it another way. You can't think about these things about a person in longevity and remain in a hostile relationship with them. Your circumstances change and your resource challenges change. And what happens to you is anxiety diminishes, peace emerges, and we then deal with each other differently and walk into the world differently, which then leads us to have an attitude that's more like Jesus, which is what the entire book is about. And we do it together. So Paul is simply saying at the end of this all, humans, as hard as it might be, Work diligently from morning till night to notice when your thinking is just about things that are not full of gratitude and drive your thinking the other way as much as you can. It will not be easy. It will not just happen. And if you are someone with trauma that has affected brain chemistry that causes anxiety to be now a mental illness, don't feel shame just because you can't pull this off. There's some healing that needs to take place in the journey for you to even have this capacity Call those around you to come alongside you and help you with that until this can be possible for you. But in the meantime, keep practicing it where you can because every time you or I do this just once in a month, just once in a year or a hundred times a day, 
God designed our brains to be changed by it. You are affecting this just by choosing to think rightly, even when what you think isn't what you feel. So, brothers, sisters, friends, wherever you find yourself on the scales of crazy, and we all are, let us work at thinking rightly about the things of God and the things of life because it changes us and it is our participation in the transformation that makes us more like Jesus. What a privilege it is. And where we fail, we can, like Paul, say, not that I've already attained this, but I am striving toward it with my brothers and sisters who are doing the same. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us, and may we become a people that acknowledge with more clarity and regularity the whole truth about how we are functioning in our thinking day in and day out. For those of us that use our thinking to pretend that things are not what they are so we can escape the hard, help us to become uh, more able to face hard things with reality and yet help us not to eliminate the beautiful gift you've given us to think so quickly, so positively about even hard things so that we can offer our abilities to the body of Christ for them to follow us as we follow you. And for those of us here, God, that lean heavily into seeing the world in a place that it needs fixing, and so we struggle so much to find what is positive in it. God, would you remove when we're in these passages any shame that might come our way that we are in some ways broken or failing, and instead uh, just remind those in this room in that space that uh, this is a gift for them to practice and to lean into those who do this more easily and that they are a gift to us to point out to us what still needs to be made right so that we have plenty of just things to think about. For those in the room here, God, that struggle with uh, trauma in their lives that have occurred or are occurring and that now there is brain injury to the point where what we in our society call mental illness is, is a thing that keeps affording their ability to step into beautiful spaces like this passage. God, would you come to them with great compassion and comfort and remind them they are part of a body here that is here for them for their journey of healing and that together through the healing journey, we can get to a place where thinking positively becomes possible and thinking positively will lead even to greater healing. What a design you have created in our bodies and brains and thank you that we don't just have to trust your word now like Paul and the Philippians had to without brain science, but that in our human journey, you have continually over 2,000 years shown us that what you said long time ago actually matches the way you've made us to function. God, may we be great participants with you in finishing the good work you began in us while we simultaneously remind ourselves that we hold no responsibility to finish that work because you've already promised you'd do it without us. Thank you, Jesus, that you will get it done whether we participate or not. And yet, you honor us and call us and invite us to be active participants in it so that we can say we did it together with you and with each other. Help us get there, God, so we can be great ambassadors of your kingdom and your glory to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.